Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, is now shall and be. will be forever. Amen. 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 <laughs> so I did the brewery one. Matt, you ruined my prayer. Three Dogs North is an attempt to objectify the subjective with little violence as possible. The following has been torn from its origins in space and time and put entirely at your disposal. Dude, I got a kind of funny story uh, just to kick us off. So I'm giving this retreat in October to some folks at St. Alphonsus up on the north side. Hang on, real quick. You can't tell yeah. this, but we're mooning you right now. How funny yeah. is that? Are you serious? No, it's bad. <laughs> totally. That's so disrespectful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, continue. Um, so I'm giving a talk, two talks at this retreat uh, for young adults there. And I've been in contact with the guy who's kind of organizing it and he has a core team and they wanted to meet with me before the retreat to kind of hear what I was planning on talking about and things like that. Um, so, I mean, this is almost a month away, so I had to kind of scrap to go ahead and thought about it very much. So I got together some ideas of what I was going to say and um, we go and have brunch and these people are super great. And I mean, they're young adults, they all have real jobs, but they're also volunteering a bunch of their time to to do a sweet retreat for um, their fellow young adults on the in the, like the city, living the city life and young urban professionals and whatnot. But um, the reason I tell this story is because it was the first time pretty much that I've ever run into people that listen to the podcast that I didn't already know listen to the podcast. Oh, wow. Yeah. And they even said that they were listening to it on their way to Blue Island. <laughs> And it was it was a weird feeling. It was flattering. But then as I began to kind of go over what I was going to say in the talk, they were like, oh, yeah, you said that in the podcast. <laughs> and, and I was all paranoid after that. Like, oh, my gosh, all my material is blown. You know, like I was going to tell for the confession stuff, I was going to tell some of the stories um, that we told on that summertime haircut episode. <laughs> And stuff, and I could just see in their eyes, like, we've already heard this. <laughs> this is kind of funny. It never occurred to me that people that I would run into in real life listen to this. Besides, you know, the obvious, the people that already knew us, and that's why they listen. Um, but have you guys ever run into that? People that you didn't know, they were like, oh, yeah, I know you from the podcast. Yeah, I've had it once or twice. Um and to be honest, most of the time, I'm more stoked to meet a fan than they are to meet me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like, there's very no way. True. This is such an honor. And they're like, I feel like this is backwards right now. <laughs> like, no, 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 you don't understand, dude. I'm so stoked to meet you. <laughs> yeah. You have no idea how rare this is. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah, yeah. very true. That's real. Um, no, it's happened, I guess, a, co- a couple of times anyway. It's kind of weirded me out both times, honestly, but in a good way. Um, just one guy told me that, uh, he did not think my voice sounded as silky smooth in real life as it does on the <laughs> podcast, which like, whatever. Um, yeah. In real life, it's kind of nasally and girly. <sighs> <laughs> whatever. Move on yeah. from that one. <laughs> whatever. Whatever. Yeah. Um, 
So that sounds like they were some pretty legit fans of the cast, though. Yeah, I think so. I mean, not all of them. I think probably sure. one or two were instigators, but um, cool. they'd all at least heard it. That's very cool. That's very cool. Super famous. Really famous. But uh, <laughs> That was an interesting story you just told, Father. Thank you, guys. <laughs> I think we're done for the night. Yeah, yeah I don't, I'm not feeling this. Let's, Let's wrap it up. And another thing. Word. So what's your observation, Rob? Right. Actually, some of my favorite podcasts that we've done have been Rob being like, hey, here's an idea. Booyah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Dropping some bombs. Uh, all right. So it kind of starts with a little confessional story that I'm a little embarrassed about, but I'm okay with it being on the cast here. So tell it. Um, so a few days ago, I was on YouTube and I generally am very good about not getting sucked into the YouTube vortex that is possible, you know. It that, is quicksand. <laughs> it is absolutely quicksand. But uh, I was listening to, I don't know, I was, I was listening to like a country song or something like that. And somehow it popped up on like videos you might like or something like that. It was like soldier like makes it home for his sister's wedding. Okay. So I've seen that one. Have you really? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I clicked on it, man, and this thing was like, yeah, this thing was uh, really cool, actually, but like kind of a tearjerker. And so this girl um, was getting married, and she didn't think her brother was going to be able to make it home from the war, and he didn't either. But he got like a day last minute. Are they like taking pictures in her backyard? Or yeah, something like? and so yeah. she's in her dress, and she, they're taking pictures. And her brother gets like one day leave, and he surprises her. Um, at and so he like just shows up on her wedding day, and he's in like all his military stuff, and uh, so she sees him, and they're filming all of this, and she just starts like, she kind of like laughs at first, and then she just starts bawling, and like runs up and hugs him, and it's really it's a touching video. And so then, of course, all the other freaking videos on, like, the recommended for you were um, just, like, these, like, really sappy, like, wedding videos. I don't even know, man. But I got I got sucked in. And the next one was, like, this girl, it was at her reception, and her dad had just died. And so her brother, like, recorded this song for her. And then, like, her grandpa, it seemed like, and a couple of the other, like, groomsmen came up and danced with her, you know, like, for the father-daughter dance. And Oh, yeah. Anyway, so I got, it was probably, like, 40 minutes or something like that. I get sucked into <laughs> not this. not that bad. Yeah. <laughs> it's not. It wasn't that bad. But, uh, and then it was just, like, a couple, like, funny proposal ones or whatever. But I noticed, here's what I noticed in watching these, in this YouTube vortex that I was in, was that, like across the board when anything like this would happen and especially like with the proposals, which in theory would be like, you know, what the the girl, you know, on this YouTube video had been waiting for like her whole life. Their very first reaction, like before anything else was to like cover their eyes. Hmm. And so they would they would like and it wasn't, you know, a lot of times they would start crying or whatever but they would just like put their put their hands over their face and it would take them like 10 seconds a minute or whatever before they could even look up at like the guy that was proposing to them hmm. and it made me it was just very interesting like in thinking about that of like why why is that the first reaction there because i like i 100% 
like you you just know those situations where it's like i don't know um yeah like you have that like immediate reaction to like cover your face um almost like from joy instead of fear and so it made me think of something that father sidewick said in class in his church and religion class a couple years ago and he was talking about purgatory do you remember this yeah Mm -hmm. uh He's, he told that same story in our Okay, class. and he was talking about purgatory. It's like the best explanation he's heard of purgatory was that, like, a mother heard that her son was killed in the war, but the army actually got it wrong. And, like, a year later, um, I don't know if he was a POW or what or if it's even a true story, but, like, a year later, her son, out of the blue, who she thought was dead for a year, like, shows up on her doorstep and like just rings the doorbell. And so this mom comes to the door and, um, and she, the, her first reaction when she sees her son is she slams the door in his face. And so he like hollers in her. He's like, what's going on? And she's like, I just, I need like 10 minutes. I can't, I can't right now. Wow. And so Cywick's whole point was like, it was, it was like too much for her to be able to handle right then and like that's the more accurate description of purgatory and that that story had always kind of stuck with me but anyway i w- it was honestly just watching these youtube videos and again like just video after video almost across the board on these like sappy proposal scenes or whatever like very sentimental you know cool cool videos and everything important moments in people's lives but almost always that was their first reaction was to cover their eyes um, from it because it was like I don't know like they couldn't believe it was happening or almost like it was like too good to take in in that second um, mm. so there's my observation I mean we can go with it or not or whatever dude that's way more than I've ever done getting stuck in the YouTube <laughs> vortex <laughs> I've never... What's it? why don't you walk us through your typical YouTube vortex <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, uh, but I don't want to stray from this point. I mean, mine usually real quick. YouTube uh, vortex, go for it. Definitely some dunk highlights, Mm. like uh, the not top tens. I've gotten stuck in those for like a good year. (laughs) I recently got stuck in one on the recommendation of somebody. I man, you can totally see it coming. But somebody was telling me about these videos where people are basically jerks to the cops who know their constitutional rights and how. Like, you don't even have to roll your whole window down. You can just crack it legally. And as long as you can hear the police officer, that's good enough. So the police officer will be like, can you roll your window down all the way? And they're like, no, this is good. And the cop can't do anything about it. And it's just, it was fascinating. Like, something that I would never do. And it makes you uncomfortable even just to watch it. But it's also, I don't know, it's like rubbernecking on a, on the road when you see an accident. You just have to look. And that was the most recent one I got sucked into. That was hardly as edifying. It did not have any sort of theological implications. I do like watching ones of people getting tased. I've gotten stuck in that before. Tased or pepper sprayed or gassed. I think it's because I've been gassed. Tear gassed? um, It's a type of tear gas, yeah. Hmm. Um, Yeah. Yeah, and then the other one... 
my one while I was writing my STL thesis was Dude Perfect trick shot stuff. Oh yeah, those are sweet. Those are sweet. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and I also liked finding um, it, they're kind of similar to the Soldiers Coming Home, which I've definitely been stuck in that vortex. Yeah, there's, there's some good ones on yeah, there. There really are. It's funny that you said that too, because I just out of nowhere, I go to Wimp.com sometimes, and they have it's kind of like family friendly top ten video kind of things, and they'll have funny ones, they'll have kind of interesting ones, and then they'll always have some heartwarming you know, whatever, and a lot of them are soldiers coming home, and I then I just thought, I'm going for it, and I just started watching, like, 10-minute-long compilations of, and I'm crying, <laughs> like, it's, it's one of it the only is, that dude. Me oh, I know, totally. I know, it's yeah. not, the, the other one that gets me is, um, um, when couples, you know, find out they're pregnant, or things like that, or a wife will tell her husband that she's pregnant, or, you know, a couple to their parents, um, those, those are hilarious. They just, they crack me up and they, they, yeah, they get me. But I, to your observation, man, I think there's a lot, there's a lot there anthrop- anthropologically of just the human aspect of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, well, I mean, it's all over the Bible that you can't look on the face of God and not die, you know? Sure. Um, there's a certain, I remember a priest was once telling me, he was starting to get into fasting, um, and this was a priest that, like, I never would have thought would be into some, like, kind of hardcore spiritual asceticism, because he was kind of a, even though he was a Christian, he was kind of an Epicurean at heart and wanted, you know, loved the pleasures of the world, loved, it's kind of the Chesterton, Catholicism is cigars and fat steaks and glasses of brandy and whatnot, and just enjoying God's creation, always with the creator in mind, like in moderation and everything, but he, uh, for some reason, got interested in fasting and was reading books about it and doing it and some of the, sort of the ancient wisdom, you know, it's like a lot of things in modernity we've been like, oh yeah, those are just kooky old antiquated practices and we've sort of given them up not realizing why people ever did them in the first place and he was talking about a time he did a, um, gosh, it was probably like a week-long fast or something. I don't know. There were various... He gave me one of the books he was reading. There were various kind of levels of... um, like a three-day only water fast. And your body can your body can handle it. And it really does... I did it on my 30-day. Uh, just a three-day nothing but water. And first day is kind of a bummer. But then after that, you just sort of... You are really keyed in and your mind is really sharp. Um, and a lot of it's biological. Like you're... You know, you're processing all these toxins and getting them out of your body and whatnot but spiritually you are also feeling your like total dependence and weakness and uh, but then there are also like longer ones you can do that are only vegetables like the book of daniel fast where those three guys in the king's court only ate vegetables and then there's ones where you just eat juice and anyways he was doing some long fast and he was praying a lot of holy hours and it was kind of a retreat amid his work that he was doing and he said he was sitting in his church by himself, and all of a sudden these waves of kind of love and joy and peace came over him. And the way he described it was almost like the waves of the ocean just beating down on the sand over and over and over again, just pulverizing it, but in this really refreshing and life-giving way. But it was so intense, he said, his prayer was, don't kill me. Um, And it sounds kind of dramatic, but I, I think, you know, I have no doubt he was sincere that this was really an intense experience of like the living God and what 
is always kind of available to us, um, that God is constantly loving us in this intensity and showering us with his love like this, but we are not always keyed into it. And he just kind of keyed into it in that moment. And I actually thought of that experience recently. I went to the Sufjan Stephen concert. Um, gosh, I think it was last spring or summer. can't remember now. But he, uh, do you guys like Sufjan? Do you ever listen to him? I don't listen to him. I don't know. I don't know who he is. Okay. Well, he was a musician. I just enjoy his music a lot. And um, one of his songs is called The Transfiguration. That was a big uh, part of my story, discerning priesthood. I, was, I remember working late nights in the lab because I was majoring in biochemistry and I did, had the summer job of just working in a lab late at night. Well, not late at night all the time, but part of doing biochemical work research is running these experiments that take hours and days at a time just to get like one little sample that you can use to run a reaction and measure it and stuff. So you'd have to set up your bacteria culture at 6 p.m., then come back in at midnight and change it so that you'd have it in the morning to work. And just a lot of like lonely alone time in the lab coming in by yourself. And so (laughs) this is Gosh, it was probably 2005 or something. So I had this big disc man in my cargo short pocket. <laughs> and I just had this one CD that I kept listening to. It was the Sufjan Seven Swans album. And the last song on that album is The Transfiguration. It's just this really simple banjo riff. It starts out and he, it's basically just a retelling of the story of The Transfiguration. And then the, the then like all these oboes and uh, just a ton of different instruments, trumpets and everything come in. And it's this intense thing at the end where it's like son of God, lamb of God, uh, have no fear. We draw near and all this stuff that, I mean, if you're Christian, you realize it's kind of Trinitarian language um, of God drawing near. And that was kind of a, I, I just have vivid mem- memories of being alone in that lab, listening to this song and feeling like the possibilities were kind of endless uh, for my life following this, following this love. And, uh, I have no doubt that ultimately led to me choosing it. But in any case, I went and saw him in Chicago and his most recent album was like really subdued. And he basically played all the music from that. And, uh, all of a sudden out of nowhere, I don't even remember like the, the whole concert was kind of this experience. It was perfect for me now that I'm like 30 and I'm sick of if I go see live music, I don't want to stand in like a bar and watch it. I I want to sit in a theater and be, you know, performed to. So it was in the Chicago theater and we it was just like you were meant to sit and listen. And he starts this song and all of a sudden it's like it doesn't even have any words, but it's just getting louder and louder, but not in a violent or oppressive way. And the visuals and stuff are like these sparkling lights behind this kind of thin veneer screen that's projecting like movie images of various beautiful nature scenes. And you're just overwhelmed sensorily, if that's a word, and both through your ears and your eyes to the point where it's like you you can't talk to the person next to you because it's so loud, but you also don't feel like I have to plug my ears. This is annoying. And I felt that same thing that I remember that priest telling me. I was like, don't kill me. But I I was just like, I was laughing. My first reaction was to just laugh because it was so intense and beautiful that uh, I couldn't even hear myself laughing. But it was that same kind of experience of overwhelming 
in a good way. Because there's overwhelming in a bad way, right? You, like you said, Rob, you could cover your eyes at a scary movie. You're like, ah, I can't look at that. Right. But there's also like, oh my gosh, this is so good. I want this to last forever, but I'm afraid it'll kill me, you know? Which is uh, interesting, too, even to go back to like the initial... That's a cool, very cool story. Um, but yeah, honestly, just like thinking about watching these YouTube videos that I did, like one of the reactions again with, with tears and like, a, you know, covering their face is oftentimes laughter. Like I thought it, it was mm-hmm. very interesting that you, you said that. And I mean, the only thing, and we've talked about this a lot in the podcast, but it's kind of that, that Lewis notion of like, you know, the lion in, um, Narnia being completely safe but completely terrifying at the same time and it's just the mm. I mean it's an experience of the living God and so that was I mean that was big in my 30 day last summer was just going back and I would go to my director the next day and I was kind of relating even when you were talking to about the just that kind of that image of like the ocean waves like in a sense, like pulverizing this sand, but it's like just completely um, natural and gentle at the same time. And there was a couple days on my 30 day. And like the best way I can describe it is I would just be exhausted at the end of the day. And like I had just felt like I felt just completely pummeled. I think pummeled was like the the word that I had used. But not hurt at all. It had just like exhausted me to like experience this like kind of openness to grace for that amount of time. Um, and so, yeah, it's just, it's very, it's very interesting But those couple of things are, I guess, related to um, when you were talking, but just getting back to that, that Lewis notion, it's like, you know, I'd rather be eaten by you than fed by um, anyone else. And even relating it to like those YouTube videos of, yeah, like marriage proposals or finding out like, you know, um, your wife is pregnant or like your brother made it home for your for your wedding. Like those are such human experiences, you know, that in some capacity, like we all long for um, in whatever like way and state of life we're, we're in and called to. Um, but to think like. I guess just kind of like following how we've been moving this conversation is like, yeah, something like that is like truly an experience of the living God, even though like it's a video of like two people doing, um, you know, a sense of like ritual or tradition or whatever, you know, the guy gets down on one knee and the girl like immediately covers her face because of the joy in her life. And to think that that's like, just in a, a sliver of an experience of the living God is pretty, it's pretty cool. Like to, to think about like just the gifts that like God gives us throughout our lives. And I don't know hmm. every moment of the day, I guess, but it, you know, it is certainly heightened in certain experiences. And um, I guess in our, I'll tell you, to, I'll tell you though, the soldier, the soldier one that gets me every time is the, when either the soldier is a father and, there's a son who he's greeting like at school or whatever. Yeah. But also I think because I'm a, a man, like the, the sonship thing gets me. Um, but the one that got me recently was this, it's this really short kind of grainy iPhone video, somebody behind this young kid who's in a sailor hat and everything. And, uh, 
he goes into his dad's tiny room and wakes him up. And his dad's just kind of a, like, Mario-looking guy with a mustache and <laughs> kind of tubby. And he's laying there in his white T-shirt, and he his dad his son kind of, like, shakes him. And his dad's, like, you know, understandably a little annoyed. He's being woken up. And then he looks and sees that it's him. And he immediately just, like, this old man jumps to his feet and hugs his son. And you can see his face over the kid's shoulder. And he's like laughing and then starts crying. And it just was like, I mean, the transition, the intense uh, movement from you're unconscious to then realizing what's happening and that the love for your son is overwhelming and like his presence there has given you such joy that, I mean, that really is the stuff of life, man. Like, all this stuff about... I just finished Everlasting Man today, G.K. Chesterton. And what I love about his writing is that he's just so... He's so dismissive of... In kind of an awesome, articulate way of rationalism that or materialism or any of the isms that want to reduce human experience to nothing but, like, neurons firing or materialistic causes. And, you know, what's really real is these things that are just kind of basically ideas, you know. We're just imagining laws of physics. I mean, yeah, they're measurable. You can say, like, whenever I do this, this always happens. But, uh, I mean, even Hume says, like, no no amount of uh, finite observations, observations can ever uh, constitute a universal. And that much is true. Like, you don't... Like the physical laws of the universe are no more real than, are are way less real than like a soldier coming home, you know? And that experience of what happens to you inside uh, when you see this person who you thought was millions of miles away from you and now is right here in front of you. Um, and I think like the the biggest point of the Chesterton book that I got it was at the very end, he's like, what you can kind of trace like human thought and religion on two tracks before Christ. It's uh, philosophy and mythology. Mythology is kind of the, the populist common man's way of explaining the universe, which is through stories, basically, you know, uh, Zeus ate this person and then he barfed him out and he became this person and then they stole fire and blah 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 you know and these kind of kooky crazy stories that people didn't really believe like they they would kind of assent to and offer incense to Jupiter or whoever um, but Chesterton's point was that it was never the kind of religious adherence where it would say like I'm for Zeus he's the real god and Brahma is not you know um, but then philosophy was much more skeptical it was uh, it was like, no, there's, you know, these universal forms and ideas and, um, but it was never like life. And that, that's my point about the, the materialist physical causes thing. Like, yeah, okay, great. I see that. And I see the value and we've, we've done a lot with that scientific knowledge and making and harnessing the laws of the universe, you know, launching things into the space and going and visiting the moon, like all that's dependent on gravitational laws and whatnot. But, um, philosophy and mythology never met until Christ when 
like all of a sudden this story, which was in that way a mythology because it was a story that the creator of the universe was a father this whole time and that he was always trying to gather his children and in the fullness of time sent his own son to be one of us. Um, no other mythology had ever claimed that, like that, that the one God, the principle of all that is, visited us, became one of us, and then died for us and rose again from the dead and et cetera, et cetera, that there's that whole story of um, God saving us, God loving us enough to think we're worthy of saving. But then all of the philosophical reflection on that. Um, and, you know, like, well, then if God has a son, that means he's, you know, he's not just one God, but at least two. And then here's this Holy Spirit person who is alive and active in the members of the church. And so maybe God is three. And, the, you know, like all of the heresies and the combating of the heresies throughout the early church was all philosophical reflection. And they used some philosophical words like substance and accidents and person and uh, nature and all that stuff. But the point of it, I think, that Chesterton comes to is that uh, the image of the keys that Jesus gives in the Gospels, he says, Peter, here, you, you know, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. Uh, he says that metaphor is really apt because a key is something that by itself doesn't really make any sense. You know, there's no logic or um, like necessity to the key looking the way it does. The only logic to the key is that it fits the lock, you know, and the key that was the gospel, that is the gospel, fits the lock. And that's why it had such transformative power and why history has never been the same since Christ entered the scene, because this story and the philosophical reflection on that story fit every single human longing and uh, capacity for understanding and and was in that way like too good to be true, but does not mean it's irrational because it's on the other side of reason, something that was a revelation that we couldn't have known on our own. But now that it's been revealed to us, like, yeah, you can say it's too hard for me to believe that, but you can't say that, um, oh, it's just like every other religion. It's just, you know, it's like Mithra coming out of the cave. That's just, you know, Christ coming out of the tomb of the resurrection is just a reflection of that and blah, blah, blah. It's like, no way, dude. Why is it still alive? Nobody believes in Mithra anymore, but however many times Christianity has appeared to fall, to decay, and to ruin, that it's come back stronger than it was before, I mean, it's just a key, and it fits the lock, period. And um, that, I think, like, when you see it reflected on all these little images, you know, like a, a son returning home. There you go, the prodigal son, whatever. Um, not exact parallel, but... All of these things that tug or ring some tuning fork in our heart where it's like, that is the truth. Whatever that is, that's real. Um, I can't describe it, but it is real. And whatever else I've been doing today, stuck on YouTube, you know, sitting in front of my computer, wasting time, whatever that is, I, that's what I want. And it creates this reaction in us where it's like, oh, I don't know. Does it? Does that kind of make sense? That's so baller, dude. I've never heard Chesterton that whole notion of like the keys to the kingdom have to have a lock. Um, but that's a yeah, makes total sense. That's super awesome. Mike, is it also? Do you also think it's awesome? I do think it's awesome. I mean, right on, dude. 
All right, we can cut this off then, huh? <laughs> Check Good it. Podcast. That about wraps it up. Yep. Um, yeah, because even and not to overanalyze like the specific action of covering up your face, but to your point about there's no the like the material is not the the realest thing that's occurring in that moment. Is it makes that's what children do. That's what children do when they want to hide from something or act like something doesn't doesn't exist. They just cover their face. But that, of course, is not the purpose of that. So there's a transcendent experience that's going on that kind of undermines the physical reaction of, of what they're doing right there. Um, that, like, even when you were talking, my, my thought was, like, yeah, the laws of physics, I guess, they, they apply, you know, and they're testable or whatever. But what we're what you're looking at and what those two people are experiencing are literally the things that move creation into being like that's that's a participation in love that is coming from the blessed trinity you know at at its core that's exactly what it is which is a sharing in the living god which is the mover of all things and that's why people go to weddings that's why people like this summer i i was at a wedding and everyone is just stoked to be there because you get to share in the material of life like this is literally the essence of life that we all get to peer into that we all get to touch at and grasp at and and there's enjoy a sense, there's a sense that you've even though this is this the simple everyday thing that you that happens all the time that in these moments you've somehow pierced the mystery of the universe you know yeah and well even i think more true than that it's pierced you that's why you're like ah mm. I, I didn't expect this. I totally didn't expect this. And now this thing has been lunged into me and I have to react to it now. Um, and that's, a, that's my whole point is like the physical reaction. It, what you're doing is not going to stop the actual experience of itself. That's like, mm-hmm. you know, the kid hiding, putting his hands over his face, acting like he doesn't exist anymore. There's something way, way more real that's going on. Um, that, like to your point, that's what Chesterton is getting at is the things that make up life are ultimately relational and communal. And so when you have two people who are, um, we were talking the other day at Hansa, the, the tractor beam, the unspoken things of life between human beings. Um, it's uh, honestly, that's the stuff that moves creation into existence. That is the love that, um, that moved God to create the world, that moved God to send his only son um, to save and redeem us. That's what has a father go and fight over in Iraq or Afghanistan and come back, you know, fighting for his life just to see his son. That's like every single incredible story that's ever been told is all about desiring to be with the one that you love, to be in union and relationship with the other. And to say that life is made up of some scientific properties or some material elements. And that's the essence of life or that's what it all boils down to. This reductionism is a joke, dude. (laughs) That's, that's, I mean, honestly, that's what it comes down to because, you know, some chemical reaction, biological, whatever that's going on inside of you, isn't what moves a father across all of the earth to be with his family or, you know, whatever great story. It's all about, this transcendent union between relational human beings that desire to be in union with the other. Uh, and, and by the way, Chesterton's point is that it's not that that point of view that 
everything is just determinist causes and if we could somehow like measure every single law of physics down to the subatomic level we could you know we could predict human choices because ultimately your brain is just made up of these chemical reactions and those are determined by subatomic particles reacting at levels that we can't yet determine or see um right it's hard like, okay yeah it, 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 it you can't yeah hard determinism you can't you can't really refute it but chesterton's whole point is that yeah well okay but it's the same thing as the person in the insane asylum who says everyone's out to get me and you argue with them and you say well what about that person right there are they out to get you and they say yeah of course yeah and you say but they say they've never met you and they don't know who you are and he's like that's exactly what someone who was trying to plot against me would say they would hide it you know and it's like his point is that you don't argue out of this hardcore rationalism because a rationalist system is not faulty because it doesn't make sense. It's faulty because it's narrow, because it doesn't account for, uh, or it, it doesn't, it's not open enough. It's this closed loop that everything that we see can easily be fit into this tiny little worldview that doesn't make room for anything bigger than it. And if anything appears bigger, then we just suck it into our little circle and say, well, that's only this. And you try to refute it and you're like, okay, well, I can't argue because you've made a system where your dogma is the whole thing about miracles. He's saying like um, the people who deny miracles because they're, quote, free thinkers are not um, they're not going by evidence because the preponderance of the evidence is that miracles happen constantly. I mean, like the average person Chesterton's point will say that they either have experienced a miracle or know someone who has. Now, you, as the miracle denier, have to say either that those people are stupid and ignorant and can't be trusted, um, either because they're liars or because they're too stupid to know about the laws of physics and nature and what blah, blah, blah. Or you can point to, well, look at these stupid, you know, pieces of toast that happen to have, like, the image of the Virgin Mary and, you know, people. People are easily suckered into believing things are miracles. And he's like, the existence of counterfeits does not. Um, it, would, it would be like saying that a counterfeit hundred dollar bill means that the Federal Reserve doesn't exist. You know, the counterfeit kind of proves the, the real article. But his main point is that th- who's the dogmatician? The dogmatist is the one who says, despite the evidence, I still believe that there's no such thing as miracles because why there are no such thing as miracles period. The reason you don't think there are miracles is because you think there can't be such a thing as miracles because in your system there can't be. So it's just the same as the insane person thinking everyone's out to get them. Yeah, okay, in your system it makes sense, but you have made no room for anything outside of your little tiny world. Oh yes. Why is there something rather than nothing? You know, Another thing that that stands out from your observation, the initial YouTube one, is just the uniqueness of the face of the human being. Sure. Um, And like especially the eyes as well, Um, where it's, you know, the the whole window to the soul notion, which I I definitely think is true. Um, And then even in scripture, you hear a lot of you kind of talked a little bit about father, but 
you know, no one sees the face of God and lives, that there is this uniqueness to the face sure. that that is, um, you know, kind of the source of beauty from, especially from the Father, from the Blessed Trinity. Um, well, but, Roger Scruton talks about this. Like you, when you talk to a person, you don't talk to their arm or their leg. You talk to their face because that's where the person is. <laughs> and it's, I mean, it's, it's so simple to be, as to be ridiculous, but it's, Profoundly simple that that's where the person is right. right there. Right. Yeah. Specifically in the yeah. Well, even with eye contact. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just that's such an interesting. Did you see there was there was dynamic. a uh, there was some like art exhibit years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's probably on YouTube. You know what I'm talking about? Where this woman just sat at a table and people would come and she would just look at them. Yeah, she's crazy, by the way. Don't, oh, I'm sure she is, she's, but she's done some really absurd stuff. Um, oh, it's a, totally modern art where art is just an experience thing and not an actual I reflection this, of some though. divine beauty. But the art exhibit, quote unquote art, it's basically just kind of a sociological experiment in my eyes. But yeah. interesting nonetheless, she's sitting at a table and people that come through the exhibit sit on the opposite side of the table, maybe like three feet from her. And she just looks at them and they don't talk. She just looks right into their eyes and people have crazy reactions. Like they start laughing or a lot of them cry just because it's this intense human uh, connection thing that's, you know, subterranean or beyond words. And just through her looking right at you, you feel kind of known and... I don't know, valued. I, I didn't sit there, so I don't know. But like something intense is going on there where two people are looking into one another's eyes, especially because they don't even know each other, that it's it's like borders on the on the sublime. I don't know. I wonder it's I was kind of thinking when um, you were just babbling on Connor about whatever the age you were talking about wasn't listening. Uh, <laughs> but. <laughs> No, when you um, just the notion, like the very basic notion, right, that like our faith is not against reason in any way, but in some capacities, like it does go above reason. And I was resonating with like Father Barron when he always used to talk about like grace invades us. Like we don't grasp that God, he comes to to us. And it's like an invasion of grace is always the first move. Grazia prima. And um I don't know, just this notion, too, that, like, the whole Augustine thing, that, like, Lord, you were within, and I was without. And, like, in these human experiences, like, yeah, and, and maybe it is something to do, like, when as simple as a crazy lady that, like, at a, you know, a table looking into your eyes can make a person cry, because all of a sudden they're known, and again, like... Yeah, in that moment that whatever. The, or, or it provides the illusion of being known. I don't sure, know. I, mean, I don't know. But, like, there's got to be a hint of truth in there or something deeper than that, you know? Or, like, the sister that, like, sees her brother, like, make her wedding from, you know, from the war and, like, just starts bawling and, and like, can't handle it in a lot of ways. Um, it's like it – it's like that experience of love, like – disarms all of these walls that we put up like just for a second and it's like i i feel like it's an experience of that of like 
God actually being within, even though, I mean, I, I don't think very many people would say that about it, that like, again, if you see the face of God, like it, it can kill you. I mean, it's that good anyway, to where like the reaction is to cover, like to cover your face. Cause that's the only thing you can do in those moments. I don't even know if that makes sense. It just something that like kind of spurred, spurred in my mind when you were talking. Yeah, I mean, like, take the crazy lady and whatever shadow of truth is in that experience those people had, having her look at her. Like, what about prayer? If God is within and we're without, I mean, how true is that? That we, our soul is kind of, like, dissipated and, and like, you know, the Missouri River is this big, massive thing, but then you get down to the Delta and it's just kind of peters out into these little tributaries and stuff and finally kind of listlessly dumps into the Gulf of Mexico where like if you if you really just kind of hem it in and get the banks in and make time in your life order some kind of order where like uh, this is God time where I'm going to retreat into the inner cell of my own heart where the Holy Spirit resides because I'm baptized and because I've eaten the body and drunken the blood of God, the love itself, which is the principle of all existence, is in me. And let him look at me. How intense of an experience is that? I mean, that's contemplation. And a guy like St. Ignatius, they say, at the end of his life, he could he could summon that in an instant, you know? Like, he, he'd be working out something with the society and doing some kind of administrative thing about his missionaries in China or whatever, and and then he'd step out onto the veranda and just acknowledge that God was constantly laboring to love him internally, make himself aware of that, and he would be brought to tears instantly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I guess, I mean, that's the goal, is like to to kind of have one foot here on earth in the mission and one foot in heaven where we realize that, like, the mission is not our own. It's it's this constant outpouring of love. And I, I guess that's, to me, it seems like Chesterton's whole point is that, like, the, the Asian religions, he's very xenophobic in a lot of ways. It's kind of an anachronism because he calls people Chinamen and stuff like that. And he, he talks about... Different times, different times. Yeah, it's different times. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he talks about those those religions as kind of being too old to die, you know? Um, whatever, ancestor worship and uh, Hinduism, Brahmanism, Buddhism, stuff like that, that... In a way, like people, people are. I'm not, I won't say that they're never martyred for it, but because uh, I think they are. But there's a different kind of adherence to it than in Christendom, which sort of like kind of regularly decays. And I mean, if you look at the Arian controversy shortly after Constantine made Christianity the official religion, if you look at um, the Dark Ages and uh, you know the barbarian hordes and um, on into the Renaissance when Christianity had sort of lost its soul and was just this decadent, the Vatican was just sort of this decadent um, bunch of kind of like lovers of the good life and art and luxury and stuff. And and then on into our own time with rationalism and secularism, um, that constantly Christianity, the, the thing that has vivified this civilization, is regularly eviscerated and kind of left lifeless, but then inexplicably resurrects itself 
and becomes much more intense than it ever was. So like after the Arian controversy, you, you have this kind of monastic renewal. After the Renaissance, you have the Counter-Reformation um, and the Jesuit order begins and all these other orders. And then, you know, the revolutions in France and uh, the Bolsheviks and everything, like you have these new religious orders that are even more uh, intensely faithful to their rule of life and charism and and then on into our own time where secularism and sexual revolution and all these pressures that seem to like, where's the Catholic culture of the 1950s? It seems to have kind of disappeared. And I know my own parishioners, like many, geez, a huge number of the faithful parishioners are people who either grew up or were formed by people who grew up in the cultural Catholicism of that era, pre-Vatican II. And they just sort of like don't get why their kids and their grandkids have no interest in the faith. Um, and it's because the culture, it was, it was like without a soul or, or, or whatever, it just like something happened. And then you go to a focus conference or a Steubenville conference or whatever you want to go to where young people are on fire and you're like, or the March for life. And you say, you want to tell me that Christianity is dead or that like, this is just a natural consequence of us being so freaking enlightened. Um, and here are these people willing to just like stand out in the freezing cold and yell about how happy they are to be alive. Uh, I don't buy it, you know. It's just, I, I guess the message is too beautiful not to continue to resurrect itself, and it's in that way it's like more intense than than like Islam or Confucianism or. Um, because those aren't really religions of hope. They're, they're they're religions that produce good people and maybe charitable people and faithful and just people, but not people with the kind of hope that Christians have, that there's something coming and we don't even know what it is, but it's so freaking awesome that I'm signing on no matter what it costs. Three Dogs North are Juice, Seabisk, and Michael Metz. Conversations have been edited to sound smarter. Audio and transcripts of this episode are exclusive property of Mundelein Seminary and may not be rebroadcast without the express written consent of Major League Baseball. Down.